0: everybody to the Resilient Podcast. My name is Neil Tan. I'll be your host today. Uh, today we've got a uh, fantastic guest, Supreet Kaur from Exalts. Yes. So she is the Chief Operating Officer of Exalts. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Neil.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. So why don't we just kind of kick it off with like a quick introduction of yourself and maybe a little bit about the platform. So,
1: okay. So, Supreet so here, I've spent, I mean, uh, uh, it's been a journey of a little close to an year and a half now with Exalt's right. me and my co-founder starting the company, but yeah. it feels much longer, obviously. Yeah. Uh, prior to starting Exalt's, I've been a business operator through and through for the last 14 years of my life, right. um, running and scaling large businesses and organizations mm. across all of APAC, right. uh, all the way from the corner of the Middle East to all the way to you know North Asia. Right, right. So. That's been me. Yeah. Uh, done everything from uh, implementing large scale solutions in blockchain mm. for an organization in greater China to identifying how do we operate at scale uh, mm. with a firm like Meta, which is you know multiple platforms and multiple apps along the way as well.
0: Right, right, right. And so, tell us a little bit about Exalt. I mean, you know, uh, exactly what is this product? Uh, the product, the propositions, the platform itself. Kind of talk a little bit about its history. If
1: you I, I think I'll talk a little bit more about the genesis because the genesis of it is ingrained in me and my co-founders' DNA sure. of you know the 30 years of experience between the two of us that right. we bring to the table. Uh, it, it I, I'd say, it's not been it's it's been an organic journey uh, where we didn't know, neither of us got up one day and said that hey let's build this. I, I think it's been a culmination of some of those things that happened through our individual careers Mm. uh, to a point in us saying that, you know, why is nobody really building it out this way? And I'll talk Mm. a little bit more about that. So uh, back in 2017, I was implementing blockchain for a large organization across greater China Mm. and uh, it took, like i built the entire thing with various consulting partners and Mm. technology partners. I moved on from there to Meta.
0: But 17 is super early to be in blockchain, right? I mean, it's.
1: I I think, given the context of the use case, it was a lot more governed by the rule in mainland China, Mm. which was Mm. to do with how do you have end to end traceability for certain uh, food categories which were susceptible to counterfeiting. Mm. Uh, So it was a lot driven around that. Uh, But, like, I realized that, you know, it took years for them to implement something. And, and, The same case with my co-founder in terms of you, he was leading HSBC's global treasury for the last 10 years in Hong Kong and uh, being close to multiple asset classes, knowing how to unlock securitization or efficiency in some of the asset classes he's trading uh, required the inherent use of blockchain as a technology, but despite having budgets on, you know, our respective industries and with ourselves, despite having all the resources in the world, just seeing that it takes years and millions and millions of dollars to get anything moving. Uh, And by the time that's done, part of what has been built out is absolutely obsolete from where the technology is, right? So I think back in 2021, late 2021, the two of us would discuss this a lot. I I have to give credit to COVID also for this, that, uh, you know, during this entire period... Uh, I was in Singapore. My co-founder was here in Hong Kong. So, you know, uh, it was also a time where due to COVID, you know, we were spending a lot of our individual time on things that we'd probably browsed upon superficially and and spending more time on that. But I think where we came to a point was saying that, you know what, when it's large organizations, whether it's a regulated entity like a bank or a large conglomerate in a manufacturing space or consumer goods space or as a, a large merchant, Um, broadly what you need in solving any of these pain points is 80% roughly the same. But when you look at what was happening across the market, we saw that either companies were focusing on crypto firms or they were focusing on building things out for organizations as a service. And we said when 80% of all things are broadly the same, why is nobody productizing this? Mm. Yes, 20% of it is going to be nuanced basis, internal processes being varied, right. the regulatory requirements being varied, what multi-companies com- multi or multi-organizations being involved. But 80% of it can be easily productized. Right. So we started shaping that out from Basically there. That how you know,
0: to create a standard product, exactly, like 80% you can, exactly standard, 20% potentially so even, custom. Right?
1: even yeah. when, you know... Uh, cloud infra companies like Azure or mm-hmm. Google Cloud, etc. are uh, have productized things. Either you can just go yeah. th- buy them off-shelf from their websites. But if you're a large enterprise, you can go to them and say that, you know, okay, we need 10% additional customization with this XYZ. Uh, but 80-90% is still the same. Uh, right. And we kind of said that, you know, do, you, do we want to just be spectators in this or shall we build it out? Because between the two of us, we know... A lot of large organizations in the tech world, in the financial institutional world. Uh, so let's build it out. And that's where the journey started a year and a half back. We we are grateful that, you know, Citigroup, U.S. City Ventures and Axel Partners believed in our vision, came on board to uh, back us monetarily and with equity. And that's where the journey started. Wow. So it started as a journey of saying that how do we productize Blockchain infrastructure in perspective of certain use cases and applications Mm -hmm. And that's where the twist began a couple of months later that when we started going to the same clients that we knew that you know These are the ones who are going to be working with us We also understood that you know while we were always building out the application or the productization of things uh, They came back to us saying that you know what as a large enterprise It's not just this even even to start at this point zero I need to make decisions around what chain will I use? How is the wallet going to work? How is privacy going to work? So even the setup of things. So we build the layer beneath it as well, which is how do you have the infrastructure to do all the things required to get your blockchain up and running in an interoperable way because that's the beauty of any financial ecosystem uh, in a single stack. So, over time, we've partnered with and we are working with multiple EVM chains. So, as long as a client wants to use any chain compatible with EVM, yeah. they can build it on our infrastructure and on top of that are multiple use case applications, all right. no code. Right. So, that's what... Exalces is
0: a is a tokenization platform primarily focused on EVM but of course it depends on whatever chains that you're looking at and that really is driven by the different clients that are inside of it yep. right yep. and so when we say tokenization i mean what sort of uh, assets or of course we were talking about it earlier like uh, real world assets what can you give some examples of the things that you guys have been doing and what sort of your focal area
1: so i will start with some of the ones where uh, see we, we've started as a company where there's two business operators and our entire thing was that uh, no matter how great the technology is if it doesn't solve for a business use case today it's not going to get adopted and mm. in some ways our inspiration was microsoft excel that excel, you know that okay. that that's, that's a technology that right. we see having seen very mass adoption across sure. enterprises right uh in a shape and form where you know every time you need to set up an Excel sheet, you don't go to your IT admin right. and say that you know set this up for me. So it's yep. seen something which is widely adopted, multiple multiple use cases. Mm. So we we started with tokenization uh, or or no code applications for several asset classes. Some of them are around trade asset receivables, so global trade receivables. Um, they are around asset management. They are around loyalty. So tokenizing loyalty mm. as a financial asset class between merchants and large financial services. Right. Uh, this will keep expanding over a period of time to more use cases and more applications of what asset class do we want to look at. But the primary thing has been that these are all asset classes which are either hard to securitize today,
0: right.
1: are inefficient in terms of its tradability in some shape or form, Or the asset class, sheer by the way it's been formed over decades, is extremely not interoperable at all. Like loyalty. It's not interoperable. You can't use your Cathay points to go to Singapore Airlines, for example. Or or any store in Singapore or Taiwan or wherever.
0: Right. And then so when you talk about, let's say, for example, trade receivables, is Hmm. there a specific sector that you're focused on inside of trade receivables or... Is there a specific sector that you're talking about, like financial products and things like that? or?
1: So within trade receivables, for example, what we are focused on is how do we use tokenization and blockchain infrastructure to enable large banks, which are typically the issuers of trade loans, to be able to downsell their assets. So this mm. entire thing is around how do you enable banks to optimize their balance sheets? within the risk limits that they carry by downselling these loans mm. to asset managers because these are all great quality right uh, loans it's the securitization today which is sure. extremely hard right uh,
0: so it's basically de-risking their balance sheet in terms of
1: it's w- taking the loans off their balance sheet sure. the, uh, so that they can issue more loans right uh, so it does a couple of things it enables banks to you know constantly issue more loans and be able to issue loans to more uh, supply chain uh, or trade financing based organizations. Yep. But it also enables them to sell these loans as assets to asset managers, to fintech firms globally. Yep. Uh, and, and that that's the idea there that, you know, there is a pertinent business problem there, which tokenization can help unlock.
0: Right. And then you mentioned a lot uh, about the loyalty piece. Hmm. I mean, how does uh, how does that operate and what sort of loyalty programs? Like, you know, of course, there's like Dairy Farm here in Hong Kong. It's yep. a huge one. Um, you know, what sort of segments are you looking at inside of that space?
1: So see how loyalty today operates is, we we all, I mean, even as individuals, we would yeah. have our own multiple loyalty programs that we would have joined. But there's two issues with loyalty. One is that at the end of the day, Uh, Most of where we try to optimize loyalty are either airlines or hotels. That's right. But we don't, I mean, unless it's you, I don't fly every day. Uh, What (laughs) I I do do every day is buy grocery, buy coffee and all of those pieces. But do we ever optimize for a grocery store or a coffee shop? No, Uh, in terms of loyalty. Then the other thing with loyalty is that these are our points which are subject to inflation. Their mm. utility is always which is uh which is not interoperable. Now, if you look at this from a bank's perspective, uh when you really rarely see the coffee shop outside will ever get to go and work with a HSBC or a Citibank with a mm. co-branded credit card, right? Because right. what how loyalty works today is large financial services firm and a large merchant on the other side, which mm. kind of leaves it to Large banks and airlines, hotels, that's it. Right. Uh, but if we look at where the world is moving, how consumers decide on whether I want credit card A versus credit card B is based on reward, utilization and loyalty. Right. Which means that what, if you start, lo- if and I mean banks and merchants anyway do look at loyalty as something which is a financial asset, you're talking about what is the way for a large financial institution to be able to work with all the tiny small businesses across all the three islands in Hong Kong uh, uh, in a way that without having the pain point of, I need to build a 200-people partnership team, which is going to be very expensive, to go and tie up with every single small merchant to give everyday rewards or something. But you do want uh, that... Loyalty points from A could work at B, B from work could work at A, so that sure. bank one can have a better differentiated credit card or a loyalty right. platform. What you are talking about as loyalty is essentially a financial asset class which is not interoperable today, it's sort of a currency which is defined by that particular financial institution or the merchant but how do you make it how do you make it interoperable in a way that your uh, your offering is more differentiated for most large institutions large financial institutions anyway credit cards are a cac game that's where that's how they acquire consumers right, right. so that you know they can offer multiple other offerings to them so how do you make this consumer acquisition game a lot more differentiated versus uh, other large institutions and so on
0: right and so as far as your platform is concerned i guess you know there there are folks that kind of play inside of the technical range i mean as far as offering these rwas at the same time, there's people that are like completely licensed and they want to create an entire marketplace mm. and they want to, you know, find the uh, the buyer seller or the investor and also so they're the, doing issuer, the distribution, like, as, distribution well. as well. Yeah. Like where do you guys sit inside of this? We whole are space? not
1: doing distribution at all. We What we are doing is we are our suite is a suite of no code applications, sure. infrastructure and APIs. Right. So. We get integrated into the financial institutions' mm. infrastructure. So think of it as an equivalent of cloud infrastructure that uh, we sit in the infrastructure for the banks. Our marketplaces will f- we build the give the infrastructure for to financial institutions and other large conglomerates mm. to have their own pla- own marketplaces. Right. We are not in the distribution game, and there is a very. Strong reason why we said we... I Like, if I'm going to be working with large institutions, why should I get into the distribution game where I'll start competing with them? Sure. That's not my forte. Right. My forte is in understanding how do large organizations work and knowing that what are broadly those 80-90% requirements which are going to be the same across Bank A in Singapore versus Bank B in UK versus mm-hmm. Bank C in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that can get productized. Uh there's no point of me getting into distribution because that's something that large institutions have worked decades on in building that sure, out. Sure,
0: right. So you're actually providing the stack and the yes. uh, and the platform so that people can facilitate that trade in a legal, compliant, and regulatory way. Yep. And so you're how how do you customize or to what extent do you customize? <laughs> we were talking we, about that. Yeah, so yeah. I just want you to
1: We yeah. do customize. See, it's also a couple of things. One is uh, the first set of anchor clients that we have across each of our use cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a co-building exercise and we've been very cognizant that we are going to take that approach where we know what those 80% things look like. The 20% we will understand from them. Out of that, maybe 5 or 6% is going to go into uh, into the core stack itself. The remaining things will always remain a little bit customizable and that's also where uh or fee model or revenue comes in that it's licenses sure. for the productized stack plus additional fee for the customization so we do customize but we also know that we are also cognizant that customization cannot take the amount of time it takes in large institutions today which mm. is you know spend 5 years and uh, 25 million dollars so we are a mm. fraction 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 <laughs> of that both in time and right, cost
0: right. so Maybe changing years a little bit. I mean, yes. you know, from your personal sort of journey, you know, how did you end up in this sort of path, right? Because you were telling me that you're like an engineer. I mean, yeah, uh, engineer by I education. Mean, yeah, by education. I mean, like that's pretty hardcore considering <laughs> your background and everything like that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your personal journey and how you ended came along inside of this whole space. So,
1: so I'm an engineer by education, but I also did a master's in uh, uh, after that in business. Right, uh, okay. that's where my journey began of, you know, never coding and only understanding okay. <laughs> the un- basics I mean. of engineering, but getting directly into the, the business realm when I started my career right. ages ago. Right. Uh, uh, but it's been a journey of essentially, you know, I started my career in an organization. I still truly, truly, truly admire, uh, Procter, okay. um, Procter and Gamble, Procter right? and Gamble yeah, the right. largest consumer products good in the company in the world. Right. Um. Uh, Again, scaling businesses, operating a region, scaling and identifying new channels of distribution and growth for the company. Right. Uh, to, you know, being in Southeast Asia and leading a regional business, looking at mergers and acquisitions right. and all of those pieces. Uh, so, I've been a business operator through and through. It's been right. a a mixed set of all things which I think the natural culmination of it was becoming a founder and… Uh, doing this on a daily basis uh, <laughs> and, and, and right,
0: giving a, a shot at with the a lot of thing,
1: with right. a lot of context switching yeah. throughout the day
0: right and then so you know when you were at png i mean you were in a technical role or no i was in a business, a business role, role. Yep. right and then you know for for women at that time was that opportunity quite prevalent or was it like you were just kind of like making your own way if you will right
1: I started my career with PNG in India, okay. uh, and uh, there were not a lot of women in the business side right. of roles, especially sales and channel distribution, etc. But uh, honestly haven't thought of it that way. I come from an education background where anyway, mm. there's less than 10 percent women in, oh, in yeah. your education <laughs> itself. So I, I think right. you, you get used to seeing rare women around you. That of course changed when I moved to Southeast Asia. Right. where there's of course a lot more women in workforce mm-hmm. there's a lot more women especially on the business side of roles as well right. uh but yeah
0: yeah so i mean it, it was uh <laughs> maybe it's just kind of changing the environment changing the geographies and then you had a little bit more exposure inside of it and so you know in your sort of journey in the startup situation of course there's probably some areas that uh you know you had to pivot how can you talk a little bit about you know how the business, how you started and how you're at today like <laughs> you know, going through the kind of uh, pivoting situation there.
1: So I, I think we've had uh, one tiny pivot in terms of our roadmap yep. and one additional incremental piece that got added to our roadmap. So mm. when we started our journey, part of our roadmap was around first building out the product product itself instead of the stack and then going on to the stack. Mm. Um, but I think what we realized over time was that one, building out the stack in a productized way is what makes more sense. So we flipped around the roadmap a little bit that way. Uh, And the other was, as I was talking to you about it, that, you know, what we had started building out even from a stack perspective was these no-code tokenization applications for institutions. But when we started going in into those final conversations on, on getting some of those anchor clients in, we realized that, you know what, even if we start this with them. They can't get started till they figure out everything else we need them, because even how blockchain infrastructure has been built today is not keeping in mind large institutions at all. So we built that out as an additional piece, which is the underlying infra. Uh, I'll give you an example to, to make this more uh, you know vivid. Yeah. Uh, so think of how wallets are created in the blockchain ecosystem today. You're supposed to remember your private keys yeah. at all point of times. You cannot lose them no matter Same what. But if you think of organizations, yes, the IT administrator is supposed to ensure that the server doesn't get hacked. But in a large organization of whatever, 50,000 people, I'm sure a thousand people forget their email passwords every single day and they just go get it reset. But how the blockchain infrastructure works today is that all 50,000 of them are supposed to remember their private keys at all points of time, never forget them. That's not how organizations work. Right. Two, it's also set up how infrastructure was set up today is also that th- this is your key and Neil's key alone. Yeah. But people leave organizations. They take up new jobs, they move different functions, they yeah. move different regions within the same global company. What happens then? Right. Then, you know, when you or I send emails to uh, we don't pay a internet usage fee to our companies or an electricity fee for, you know, this. But the how the blockchain infrastructure setup is set up today is gas fee. Right. Uh, so, what we said was that all of these things exist. But none of these are designed from an infra point of view, keeping in mind that organizations are just a large group of people. People sure. move, people forget their passwords. Yep. An organization pays for its utility bills at a central level. So, we kind of redesigned the infrastructure in a way that organizations can function. Mm. Now, what this means is that our wallet as a service or our wallet part of our infrastructure operates how organizations work. Uh, somebody as an IT admin or somebody will still have to set up the entire thing the same way the same way somebody would have set up cloud infra for a company mm. years ago or something. But people can forget their passwords,
0: and and you can and do recovery and use. all those different things, right? I mean, everybody can do recovery. Correct. And so forth. correct. Right. That's
1: the so and, and that's that's what I was telling to you about even before the podcast right. that you know right. our ethos is in understanding that. When you're building for organizations, it's very different from building for retail consumers. Right. Uh, So how do you build this out, keeping that DNA so much in mind that it can be productized at scale?
0: Right. Yeah, standard versus custom. Correct. Now, what will differ
1: in this is maybe in company A, 10 people need to do additional five levels of access Mm. versus company B. And that's where the you know, the, the no-code piece comes in that our infrastructure is set up in a way that you can just drag and drop and say, okay, I need access levels for five more people. I, I need access levels for three less people sure. and so on and so forth. That's, right. that's where that, you know, comes in that it's 80% broadly the same product. Right. 20%, maybe 10% of it, organizations can customize on their own and the rest mm. 10%, we can do it with them as a part of uh, uh, the entire onboarding and getting into things.
0: Right. So when you kind of look at it, it's like, so what's the, what are like sort of the key learnings from, I guess, the last couple of years? Uh, you bunch your head against the wall a few times <laughs> here and there. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you can share like what you learned through this process and maybe you can share it to other entrepreneurs what they could take away from this, right?
1: I think one thing we've learned through the process is that It's very easy to get distracted in our world, especially when, you know, every single asset class looks like, has a size of price of a couple of trillion dollars. So it's very easy to get distracted and saying that, let's also start building for this. Mm. I I think one thing we've learned is that focus is easier said than done. So to keep that laser sharp focus is is something you need to remind yourself of every day. And I think that's also where... uh, it helps that you know both of us as co-founders keep reminding each other that you know okay let's focus on these four to begin with and we'll keep doing more so i remember when we were forced to make her website because we had to announce her seed round last year uh, we we started with these 25 use cases and then we said that, okay, this is way too much. Mm. Let's cut it down. Right. We'd cut it down to nine and then we cut it down to saying, okay, let's be very, very ruthless about prioritizing things. Uh, so I, I think the biggest learning for me has been being absolutely ruthless and focused on on what you're building because mm. it's, it's very, very easy to get distracted.
0: Right. Do you think that uh, you could do this on your own or do you think that you would you know better to have co-founder or like if you started this all no no offense ash but <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh you know what's your view i mean there's some people that are like soul some people are co-founders yeah, but yeah. maybe there's even like teams of like yes. co-founders like yeah. three four or five of them like what's your general feeling because sometimes it goes well sometimes it doesn't i mean we don't know until you know, it happens, but... Um.
1: I, I mean, I've seen success on both pieces. I've seen people who are great solo founders. Mm. Uh, I think in our case, both of us are very complementary to each other. And because we've known each other since more than a decade as friends, it's, it's also inherent trust. So I think that goes a long way, especially when you're building a business and an organization to have those complementary skill sets at every point of time to also be able to take on each other's work as and when needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this, uh, but I, I I don't think uh, I would have done this without Ash, and I'm hoping his answer is the same. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is like split them in two different rooms and ask him the same question. Yes. <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> That's cool. So when you, when you went to do your fundraising, maybe you can talk a little bit about the fundraising process and what your experience was as... Obviously, every entrepreneur is like, you know, has gone through it or has knocked on a lot of different doors, heard no many, 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 many times, right? I mean, you know, what what was your experience? What are some of the learnings? And then what can they do better, you know, in that sense?
1: I think one thing we had done was before we actually started speaking to uh, venture capitalists, we spoke to some of the senior leaders who we had admired uh, in both of our careers, we spoke to founders of very large organizations and we also spoke at length a lot to organizations and people who would have become our clients later. I see. Uh, and what that helped us do was, and we were very, very, you know, clinical about, you know, asking them and providing ruthless feedback and ripping every single thing that we are saying completely apart and right. not being nice to us in that process. Right. Right. But I think what that did was that it ensured that... Um, we are not thinking of things in an echo chamber because sometimes it's very easy to get lost in that echo chamber when you're so close to what you've been building for several months. Um, So we went to, I I think, in preparation side of things, uh, we only started the process of going out and reaching out to some venture capital firms when we had done that entire... You Know pull everything out, that's, that's dig almost out like every like product road. market
0: fit in that sense because are talking client, potential clients, clients as well, yes, right, right, right.
1: yes. Um, uh, so I, I think the second part of it was because of the first part of what we did in terms of prep, the second part of the actual raise was easier, uh, easier, yes, interesting. Uh, the and I mean, I think we are very, very grateful that I, I can't find wood here, but we are very, very grateful for. To both Axel and City, and you know, being believing in our vision and you know us as individuals very early on in the process of yeah. raising capital. Uh, of course, given one of them is a bank, the due diligence process took much longer. But that's mm-hmm. part and parcel of you know when you're working with banks, either on your cap table or as clients as well.
0: Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean. But
1: I think, I think we we've been lucky uh, in that. Perspective with regards to a raise, and very, very grateful to, to very marquee firms and very fabulous oh, individuals. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's like a stellar lineup, right? Yes.
1: I mean,
0: it, very few have that type of credentials. So, um, you know, kind of looking forward, obviously, tokenization is top of mind. I mean, where do you see the market, you know, moving? And, you know, in terms, I mean, you've really been in in multiple jurisdictions, right? I mean, multiple geographies and so forth. So you have a very good understanding of Middle East, Southeast Asia, Greater China, and so forth. Like, what's your view in terms of the development across these different jurisdictions? What sort of key trends do you see coming out of them? And it must be presumably different in each one. What's the flavor for each, right? (laughs) So I
1: I think... uh... Each of these jurisdictions that we have significant presence in, you know, starting from west to east being uh, UAE, Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, each of the regulators and large financial institutions across each jurisdiction have a very pioneering view around how do they leverage tokenization and blockchain as a technology. so, you know, UAE has announced, you know, uh, what do they do with CBDC and wholesale CBDC. Uh, MAS is in, in Singapore is also, I, you know, working on multiple pilots and use cases. Uh, Hong Kong just had the first digital bond issued of, issued by Goldman Sachs and EHKD, which we also la- saw last week in the Fintech Week as well, the hypothetical EHKD. So, I, I think what's definitely there as a pattern across each of these three jurisdictions and more as well in in uh, EU and uh, in Europe and uh, US is that there is no question of if blockchain or if tokenization the only question is now how do we get this working for us Mm. Uh, which is where that build versus buy ends up happening that what a lot of banks and financial institutions have done over a period of time is spend their time and effort on build, which is first pay a consulting firm millions of dollars to write a paper or a report, then, you know, identify internal headcount and internal budgets, then spend another couple of years in building something out. I, I think what we are seeing across the board now is a very high degree of openness in saying build does not necessarily work. Uh, which is where we are seeing across the three jurisdictions the regulator, the central banks, and the regional global banks very, very willing to partner with fintech firms, startups like us, who are who come with a background of having always worked and spent a life in enterprises, right. being backed by enterprises like City, right. um, and saying that okay, how do we do this together so that there's a the speed to market is a lot less lot more accelerated mm. the spend on resources and time and bandwidth is a lot lower because we are all living in a time where money is no longer free so uh, how do you get by to solve that solution in a very different example it's like people thought of you know going back to excel yeah. uh, You know, no organizations thought that, okay, you know what, I want to use Excel for this particular use case internally, so let me start building Excel. Yeah. Everybody said, let me buy Excel licenses, but I'm going to write my own macros, I'm going to write my own internal programs to work with it, my own integrations, right? Right but nobody said let me start creating excel from zero mm. same thing nobody said you know when uh, people started working in a hybrid way uh, nobody said okay let me build zoom from the beginning people bought <laughs> zoom licenses <laughs> right, right, they of right. course had their own internal integrations right. uh, certain customizations on access and and so on and so forth but nobody started saying that you know let me build my own zoom from the scratch from right. scratch and and that's what we are also seeing across jurisdictions on all things blockchain and tokenization that okay we've spent enough money and years trying to do this on our own let's partner with organizations and companies which are doing this and look at it as an approach of buy uh, instead of build right so right. that's the that's the commonality of course the use cases how they're approaching things are very different which is a function of uh, how deeply is each of these jurisdictions involved in global capital markets what are some of the key roles that they play in global capital markets, uh, and and so on. So that will always vary, but those that's the top layer of what we are building, mm. which is the applications. <laughs> the infra will be the same.
0: Right, right. So, yeah, I think um, it's fantastic what you guys have been able to accomplish in the last couple of years. I mean, it's only one been, and a half years. Yeah, <laughs> one and a half years. It's, like, pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, is there any other things that you'd like to kind of share about… The experience as an entrepreneur or you know being inside of the not inside of the uh, rw yeah inside of the blockchain space uh, you know any key learnings
1: i think my learning is less to maybe less to do with tokenization or blockchain but more to do with just the fact that i, I think it's uh, entrepreneurship is something very organic I I don't think anybody wakes up one day at least I didn't, didn't. wake up one you day and say like, that now I'm going to be an entrepreneur <laughs> I think it's very right. organic as a journey yeah. and, and the best thing to be doing is leveraging everything that you've learned through your life in, in building it out so our ethos is purely enterprise whether it's financial institutions certain large global conglomerates that we are working with right um in, in saying that, hey, you know, this is the world we understand the best. Uh, we speak the same language. We've spent years and years in this world. Right. So let, let's build for the world that we understand instead of something that we don't. Because this is our uh, playground to win and play in.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Supreme. I mean, really appreciate the time that you've spent with us. And, uh, you know, safe travels going forward. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Very, very happy that you welcomed us on this podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you.